you guys very much. That was fantastic. Well, we have learned something very important over the past few weeks in our almost now completed study of 2 Timothy, namely the inestimable value of Scripture. For example, Paul reminded Timothy and us that, that the gospel, which many of us have heard since childhood, is found in Scripture. We learned that the Bible is able to make us wise, uh, that, uh, that, that leads to salvation through faith, which is found in Jesus Christ. In fact, we learned that all Scripture is inspired by God. That is, breathed out, God's very Word breathed out to us, as such as profitable, like for everything, teaching, correcting, training in righteousness. In a day when our faith found in the Bible is being frequently attacked from both outside and inside the church through false teaching, we need to be reminded of this truth, the inestimable value of Scripture. The, the Bible is life to us. So, so Paul told Timothy, as it gets to the end of this book, Timothy, preach the Word. Make the Word central to, to who you are. Be people of the Bible. Now, we get that. I mean, after all, we are Alliance Bible Fellowship. Bible is our middle name. But, but let's, let's be honest, since, you know, it is just us here this morning, there are parts of the Bible that we like more than others, right? It's okay. You can say yes. I know you do. I mean, I understand that all of it is inspired, but some parts keep our attention more than others, right? You guys are just too spiritual to nod your heads. For example, we, 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 we'll start a new year with some good resolutions, and since we're good Christians, usually one of those resolutions has something to do with reading the Bible. Maybe we decide to read the Bible through this year. That's a, roughly three chapters a day. Think about it. I think I can do that, and so we start with Genesis, right? Interesting stuff, creation and the flood and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, lots of really good stories, no problem. We make it till about January 17th just fine. You go January 17, 17, let me do the math for you, 17, 3, 51, 50 chapters in Genesis, there you go. Okay, so then we start into Exodus, more good stuff, Moses, Pharaoh, the plagues were interesting stuff, and that is until we get a little past Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. Then we start reading about the construction of the tabernacle, acacia wood and cubits and goat's hair. That's exciting. We don't even know what a cubit is. We might get bogged down just a little bit, no problem. We press ahead and we jump into Leviticus. Well, all of those. <laughs> all right. All those instructions about sacrifice, all that, all that blood. Numbers isn't a whole lot more captivating with all of those, well, numbers and lists of names. The sensei and Deuteronomy is more of the law again, but then that's all right. We, we press ahead and we get to Joshua, we breathe a sigh of relief. The crossing of the Jordan, Jericho that's kind of good. Remember that for Veggie Tales and, and good stuff, <laughs> and, at least in the first half of the book. And then we get to the second half and we're reading about the division of the land without pictures, <laughs> and so it goes. 
After the historical books, we get to the wisdom books, Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. I mean, we've been studying those books in our Wednesday morning men's Bible study for like five years. We took a psalm a week. It took us three years. And I noticed that our numbers have gone way down. <laughs> Some of you used to come. Then we, we get to the prophets. I mean, in how many different ways can you say, Israel, you're in big trouble? Uh, well, we hang in there and we finally get to the New Testament about October, <laughs> uh, which means resolutions are coming again. It's a little bit easier, at least until we get to the book of Revelation. And again, if we were honest, after all, we're being honest with each other. Another part that I find myself giving little attention to are those closings of those letters, right? I mean, come on. I mean, for example, we get to the end of Romans, and we find that Paul greets 26 people by name. And the interesting thing is, is that when Paul wrote that particular letter, he had never even been to Rome. Can anybody here name 26 people in, I don't know, Cody, Wyoming? It doesn't count if you've been there. All that to say, we get to the end of 2 Timothy today, and, and it's filled with names and, and greetings and some final exciting instructions. You say, yeah, I can't wait. The, the fact is, the, the closing of, of this Paul's final letter is a little more than sincerely yours. And, he shares some closing thoughts in the last few verses of this letter in a section that we've, being honest with each other, we frankly skip or skim. Is there anything here for us? Or maybe we can just skip it and, and, and head to the Gospel of Mark. Well, let's, let's at least read it, 2 Timothy 4. 9 to 22, and see what God's inspired, God-breathed Word has for us. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful uh, to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and, and the books, especially the parchments. Is this exciting? You're like on the edge of your seat, I know. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. And at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me, and, and He strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And, more names, Greek, Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus and Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus, 
It's like Snoopy and, and, and Claudia and because your, your mind's wandering because, like, this is really interesting. And, and all the brethren, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> it's kind of like a root canal. <laughs> it actually really is good. In fact, it is so good, it's going to take us two weeks to get through it. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, you know, I've always wanted to try Mount Vernon. Don't do it. <laughs> the, the passage can be div divided as follows. We're going to see some final instructions in verses 9 to 13. That's as far as we're going to get today. And then we're going to see next week uh, his final defense and final greeting. So for this week, here you go, some final instructions. Notice Paul starts verse Nine, by giving a, a further and more personal uh, purpose for writing this letter, it's a summons to Timothy. I, I need you to come to me and, and bring some things w with you. In addition to yourself, bring John Mark. Bring me a coat and bring me some books. He says, make every effort. That's a word, actually, that we're familiar with. It was found in chapter 2, verse 15. If you went through Awana, you know this one. Do your best to present yourself to God as one's approved. Do your best. Give every diligence to. Be eager to come to me quickly. Remember, the time of his departure has come. Timothy, uh, Paul is about to die, and he is eager to see his son in the faith. Now, will you think about what the great Apostle Paul was saying, the great Apostle Paul? Timothy, I need you. I'm about to die. I need you at my side. I find this incredibly interesting. Outside of Jesus, who was, I don't know, God incarnate, Paul was one of the most, perhaps the most spiritual man who ever walked the face of the earth, and, well, he needed others. He, he needed support. He needed physical presence. He needed spiritual encouragement. Even Jesus, the man, uh, in his time of greatest need, needed his men. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his disciples, I need you to watch and, and, and pray with me. He then went a little further into the garden and, and, and in great, prayed in great agony, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And yet when he returned, he found those same disciples asleep. Uh, later that same night when he was arrested, they all forsook him, left him alone, and fled. And here we see there were those who forsook Paul in his time of greatest need, left him all alone. And so he cries out for help. Timothy, I need you to come to me. And in our time of greatest need, our greatest trial, we need to understand that we need each other. When the going gets particularly challenging, difficult, tough, we need each other for support. We must always remember it is at those times that we feel like deserting, that we feel like, no, I don't really want to wade into that mess. I don't, yeah, those challenges that you're facing on your own, that we are perhaps needed most. People need to be able to count on us, to come to us and find shelter and hope and help in time of need. And then on the flip side of the coin, we must recognize that, as did Paul, as even the great apostle Paul recognized, that none of us are beyond needing help. <laughs> There's nothing spiritual about going it alone. 
We must never be too proud to cry out for help. We never reach a stage in life when we don't, ever, we don't need each other anymore. Paul recognized this. And, and, and one reason that he needed help is because others had deserted. So, so Paul launches into a veritable who's who of early Christianity. We're going to focus on three of those names in just a moment. But let me just briefly uh, look at these other uh, people. Crescens is mentioned only here in the New Testament, and it appears that he was appears that he was sent by Paul for some reason uh, to Galatia, which is in Asia Minor, modern-day um, Turkey. Uh, the location, this was the location of Paul's first missionary journey. It, it seems that Paul sends him there. That's, that's all we know. He says Titus has gone to Dalmatia, modern-day Albania in Croatia, also called Illyricum in the New Testament. We know a little bit more about, about Titus. Uh, while he's not mentioned at all in the book of Acts, kind of interesting, his name appears 13 times in the New Testament. He's, he's mentioned as a co-worker with Paul. From Galatians 2, we know that he was a, a Gentile, that, that Paul also called his son in the faith. So he's just like Timothy. We read about him traveling with Paul, but, but sometime earlier he had left Titus in Crete, like he left Timothy in Ephesus to set things in order there. Paul uh, wrote him a letter while he's in Crete that they became part of our Bibles, one of those pastoral epistles. It seems at this point that Titus has, has finished his work in Crete, so Paul appears to send him uh, to his next assignment there in Dalmatia. We, we also know a little bit about Tychicus, who was also one of Paul's co-workers. He seemed, in his duties, he seemed to act as a courier. We, we know, for example, that he carried the letters of Colossians and Philemon to their respective recipients. And, and here it's likely, we're just surmising, that he sent this particular letter, 2 Timothy, um, uh, to Ephesus, where Timothy was serving. It's possible that Tychicus was then given instructions to remain there so that Timothy would be freed up to come and see Paul in, in Rome. Carpus is only mentioned here in the New Testament. Apparently, he lived in Troas, which is, again, modern-day northwestern Turkey. For some reason, Paul left his, his coat there. It's called a cloak. It was, it was this very heavy, very warm, um, sleeveless, circular outer garment, hole in the middle, think big shawl, uh, put your head through. Some surmise that Paul was maybe arrested in Troas, taken forcibly to Rome, and then had to leave his cloak and his, and his books. So in these final instructions to Timothy, Paul urges, Timothy, I, I need to stop by Troas and get my, my coat. Get here before winter. I'm, I'm, I'm cold. He also wants his, his books, especially the parchments. Now, we can't be dogmatic about uh, what these were, but it has been speculated, and I think rightly so, that he was asking for his own copies of the Old Testament. And then I want you to get that. The parchments may be blank so that he could continue to write, or, or, or maybe those parchments contain some of the early stories about about Jesus. I, I need those with me. Paul is suffering in prison where it was cold and damp. He's about to die, and yet he longed for the Word of God. I, even though I'm getting ready to face eminent death, I need the Bible. 
What an encouragement that is for us to love the Bible. We, we never grow beyond our need of the Bible. <laughs> Say, I'm, I'm old, so was Paul. I've read it a bunch. Paul wrote half of it. And he still wanted it with him. Now, I want us to take the rest of our time here this morning to look closely at three other people who are named in verses 9 to 13 here, three men that I'm going to call Demas the deserter, John Mark the rebounder, and Luke the faithful. And I'm going to suggest that you will be able to identify with one or more of these men. So let's begin with Demas the deserter, his eternal epitaph. Who was this Demas? We know from his name that he was a Gentile, likely a Greek. He was probably from Thessalonica because it is there that he returns. And it's interesting to note that he's mentioned two other times in Scripture, one at the end of Colossians 4. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greeting and also Demas. Well, there he is. And then at the end of Philemon that he wrote about the same time that he wrote Colossians. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark. We're going to look at him in a minute. And Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. There they are right there. My, what does he call him? My fellow worker. So Demas was a fellow worker with Paul. Now we need to understand the timing here. Colossians and Philemon were written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And we see that Demas was, was there, a fellow worker by his side. That's great. Probably around 62 A.D., and yet some four years later, something happened. And Demas is a deserter. He, he quit. See, the word deserted means to um, abandon, to leave helpless, to forsake someone in a set of circumstances that are against him. Demas... An earlier trusted com companion and co-worker had left Paul. Why? Well, the, the text is not silent on this. It tells us that he loved this present world. The, the emphasis in the Greek is on the present, on the here and now. And we must remember the flow of the Paul's argument. He has said, the time of my departure has come, and, and henceforth there is laid up for me a, the crown of righteousness. And listen, it's not only for me, it's also for everybody who longs for, who loves the appearing of Christ, who, who loves the coming of Jesus. The, the contrast, the quite intentional contrast could not be more stark. Unlike Paul, Demas was not ready. He was not ready to depart and go to another world because he loved not the appearing of Christ. He loved not his going to him, but he loved this present world. You see, I'm, I'm going to suggest this morning that the Demas ha, has some very important things to say to us as American Christians who are so often distracted by this present world. So he departed. He deserted and pursued that which he loved. Stated simply, Demas lacked an eternal perspective. He was not willing to give up his life for the cause of Christ because he loved this world and what it had to offer. He cared less about eternal things than he did the present things. 
He and his type are to be contrasted with Paul and his type who longed for the appearing of Jesus, who loved the hope of the gospel, no matter what the cost, I'll give my life for it. Not me, Demas says, you can forget about it. To love this world means Demas was perhaps having too much fun, maybe enjoying temporal pleasures. He would just assume that Jesus delay his return. You ever... You ever feel like that? I know I'm supposed to look for the coming, but not now. You get too much of life to live. He was selfish. He was materialistic. He loved this present world. You say, gosh, you're being awfully hard on Demas. Yes, I am. Because you may remember that in chapter 1, Paul named a couple of others who deserted him, a couple of guys named Phygelus and Hermogenes, but he doesn't say anything about them. He just says they left. He doesn't say anything condemning. And you'll remember uh, that I was not too hard on Phygelus and Hermogenes, but here, this is a stinging rebuke from Paul that goes beyond just a desertion in times of trial. You see, I believe this is a choice, and we're supposed to catch this. This is a choice of eternal consequences. You see, there are basically two possibilities here. Number one, Demas was apostate. He turned from Christianity. I'm not willing to pay the price. He didn't read the fine print. When you come to Christ, it's going to cost you, not me. I'm not interested in that. Or secondly, it could be that he was a Christian, but he lacked the stuff that martyrs were made of. I don't think you can be dogmatic about either one, but I myself lean toward the former one. Because you see, 1 John chapter 2, John writes, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of or for could be translated, love for the Father is not in Him. And then we remember that in the last days, people will love themselves more than, than God. Could that be a Demas? When it was going to cost Demas to love God, to love Christ and His gospel, Demas said, no thanks, not interested. Notice it says that he loved this present world. How many of you have ever heard that the word agape is the highest form of love? It is a self-sacrificing love given by God. Anybody ever heard that before? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. We've all, most of us have heard that, especially if you've done uh, word studies, which can be frankly very dangerous. Because you see, the word that is used here is agape, agapao. I do think that agape is a self-sacrificing love, but not necessarily given by God. You see, it is ultimately a sacrifice of self. Hear what I am saying. It is ultimately a sacrifice of self to love this world more than God. It is spiritual suicide. And I think it is significant that Paul uses that word here. Paul has expressed a concern over and over in this book that people would turn from Christianity for one of two reasons, love of this world. They love themselves rather than God or fear of persecution. We don't know which, we don't know if he feared persecution. We know that Demas loved this world. And while we may not yet face persecution, we certainly 
face the challenge of love of this world. It's interesting that both concerns were expressed by Jesus Himself in the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, He said, the seed that fell among the thorns was like the one who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The deceitfulness of wealth. We've made it spiritual to pursue wealth and Jesus at the same time. Seed that fell in the rocky places, he goes on to say, was like the one who immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Because of wealth on the one hand, because of persecution on the other, the very things that Paul is concerned about. Which one is it that distracts you from following Christ? In both of these examples, Jesus was talking about those who made a profession of faith but turned away. They were never truly, some discussion about this, but I believe that they were never truly believers. Heard the word, it did not take root. Now, I do think there is a difference between quitting ministry and quitting Christianity. While I feel that Demas quit Christianity. I think the next one uh, who quit ministry didn't stay that way, but Demas forever, his eternal epitaph is a warning to us, don't love this world more than Jesus. Where's Where's your treasure? Second person is John Mark the Rebounder. Good news. While earlier in his life he had quit ministry, he was still a child of God and so eventually returned to what God had called him both to be and to do. Uh, uh, many of you are familiar with the story. Let me give you a little background. John Mark is first mentioned in Acts chapter 12. The church in Jerusalem had gathered in his mother's house. Her name was Mary. His mother's house to pray for the release of Peter, who was in prison. If you remember that story, Peter was, in fact, released. John got to see that miracle. And, and Paul and Barnabas were present at the time, having brought some gifts from the church in Antioch down to the church at, uh, to the elders in Jerusalem. And when they returned to Antioch after this particular event, at the end of chapter 12, they take John Mark with them. And then we see him mentioned again in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the Holy Spirit and the church on their first missionary journey. And they say, hey, let's take John Mark with us. And by the time we get just a few verses later, verse 13, something happened. John Mark left and returned to Jerusalem. He deserted. It sounds a little like Demas. Went to Pamphylia. Why? We don't know, but we've all heard the characterizations that maybe he was just a scared mommy's boy. Maybe he was concerned about the affliction and persecution. It had happened, you see, in that first missionary journey. Maybe, don't, don't, don't know for sure. So Paul and Barnabas finished that first journey. They returned to Antioch sometime later after the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Paul says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back and, and check on the, the church and see how they're doing. And Barney says, hey, that, that's great, but let's take John Mark. You see John Mark with his cousin. Let's take John Mark, to which Paul replied, are you out of your mind? No way. I'm not taking that quitter with me. So Luke tells us that there arose such a sharp um, disagreement between these two that the first church split happened, and so Paul takes Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark, the deserter. 
the quitter. And that's the last we hear of John Mark until we get to the end of Colossians 4 and the end of Philemon. Now, we remember uh, both were written by Paul about the same time after the second and, by the way, the third missionary journeys and during his first imprisonment. And in those passages at the end of those prison epistles, John Mark is mentioned again as a companion of, of Paul. He was there with him in prison. Later, Peter calls him his son in the faith, much like Paul called Timothy his son. We, we know that he goes on to write the, the gospel of Mark. And, and, and now at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very close of his life, of all of his former companions, and, and Paul had a, had a bunch, he could have picked one out of the end of Romans, right? 26 names. Out of all of those companions, Paul asked for John Mark because he is helpful in service. He's helpful to me in ministry. From deserter to faithful in ministry, what happened? I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that he serves an, as an encouragement to those of us who have ever... Listen to me. He serves as an encouragement to those of us who have ever failed God at one point or another in our Christian lives. Have you ever fallen f flat on your face in serving Christ? Have you ever said, enough is enough, I quit? Maybe you're just here this morning because the last thing you're going to quit is Sunday morning worship, but you've quit ministry. You're not doing anything. John Mark quit. He rebounded. So can you. I'll share a couple of other valuable lessons to be learned from this particular situation. It's often been questioned as to whether Paul was right. It's kind of harsh, don't you think, in the way that he treated John Mark in Acts chapter 15. Man, why were you so mean? Bar Barnabas got it right. May I offer this as a possibility? Paul was right, and so was Barnabas. <laughs> John Mark needed the rebuke of Paul and the patience of Barnabas. He deserted, and he needed rebuke, but he also needed a second chance. Have you ever been... In a place where you needed a second chance, the church ought to be a place where you can get that. If you've ever needed a second chance, you are in good company. Have you ever been strongly rebuked? You are in good company. I think it also speaks very well of John Mark. He could have folded at the rebuke, had his feelings hurt, quit ministry altogether, right? That's what people often do when you confront them about... Sin. I recently complete, confronted a couple uh, about some sin in their lives, and they're not here this morning. They haven't been here since. But, but John Mark, knowing he failed, he knew that he needed, to re, needed the rebuke, and he needed to then prove himself, and somehow he did. And when we fail, we need to take the rebukes that we rightly deserve. It's called accountability. That's what we do. We help each other walk in the way, and then we take it as encouragement to get in the game again. Finally, notice very quickly, Paul uh, accepted him back. Paul, it was not an eternal rebuke. When John Mark repented and proved himself, he was welcomed back by the very one who had admonished him. We need to be people of confrontation, certainly so, but we need to be people who are forgiving, accepting people who have let us down, encouraging them in their restoration. 
confrontation should never be eternal if repentance comes. Last person, let's look at quickly at Luke the faithful. That's it. <laughs> Notice the little phrase at the beginning of verse 11, only Luke is with me. That statement jumps off the page at me every time I read 2 Timothy. Only Luke is with me. He stayed. He was there. When the circumstances were most difficult is where you found Luke most faithful. Luke is a, is a picture of an unfailing servant. Many suggest that Luke started with Paul, perhaps as a missionary aide early in Paul's ministry. He was there through the second and third missionary journeys, and he was also there during the first and second imprisonments, the only one to do so. He ended up writing both Luke and Acts. That is, he's the only Gentile author of Scripture. Forty some, about 40 authors of Scripture. All of them Jews save one. Luke. And if you if you do the math, if you, just, if you just can't do by word count, not by book, but by word count, he writes more in sheer volume of the New Testament than any other author in the New Testament, even more than Paul. He no doubt shared many of the persecutions and trials that Paul did. No doubt those sufferings had drawn those two Christ together quite closely. You see, when you walk together through difficult times together, it has a way of bonding you. When you don't desert a brother or a sister in need. Unlike Demas, Luke was a man with an eternal perspective. You see, in the Greek world, the medical profession was second only to that of philosophy. Kind of like today, the medical profession is second only to that of being a pastor. Um, <laughs> I said that for all the doctors out there. <laughs> Just kidding. He loved this present world. Had he loved this present world, had he loved this present world, Luke could have done quite well. But I actually doubt he was very rich materially as a medical aid to a poor, itinerant, imprisoned missionary. But ministry was more important to him than personal comfort or personal wealth. Quite the difference today, isn't it? Paul had sent his other companions away, but he kept Luke, a Gentile, and Luke stayed. And, and, and so get the picture. There you have it, a Gentile and a Jew together, brothers in prison together. What a picture that must have been. Here's what I want you to see as we close. Paul was in his last days. He, he suspects he may have weeks, perhaps months to live. After all, he does ask Timothy to come. Some suggest it would take... Timothy up to six months to get there, but, but he knows that his time is short. He is at the end of his life. He is lonely, and so he asks for committed friends. When he's cold, he asks for a coat, and when he is at the end of his life, he still wanted the Scripture. That tells me that we never grow beyond the need of faithful Christian friends. You never get to the point where you can do it alone. You never. And you never get to the point where you are beyond the need of God's faithful word. I've read it 27 times. We'll read it 28 times. You never get to the point where you arrive, when you can do it on your own, when you don't need, listen to me, when you do not need God's inspired, God-breathed word. Every bit of it. Let's stand for prayer.